Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You can't just repeat it. You need to explain yourself. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, are you a Yanny or a Laurel? I don't even know what you're referencing. <laughs> no way. No, I have no idea. Have you not been online for the last, like, week? Uh, I, I have been, but... You haven't seen this, like, audio thing where it's like the blue dress, gold dress thing... We sell this right now. Yeah, I just Googled it. This is live, real time. Re- God, real time. What a treat for, for our listeners right now. <laughs> We're going to find out if if Dave's a Yanny or a Laurel. Will this predict whether or not I'm a conservative or a liberal? <laughs> if you give one answer, that means you're gay. It does. <laughs> I'm hoping. I would love to be. <laughs> just opens up a whole new world. Exactly. Yeah, Yanny. You're a Yanny. Yeah, clear as day, Yanny. Like impossible to think that it could be Laurel, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that you've somehow missed this is is kind of amazing. But yeah, this has been dominating the like social media for the last <laughs> eighty-two thousand retweets. Like Trump has been usurped. He's he's gonna. <laughs> he's probably just seething right now. Uh, this is what like this is one of those very cool things where it um people really hear it differently and think that the other people like it's a vast conspiracy that other people are saying they hear it a different way what do you hear i'm in an interesting position whereas i heard laurel clear as day yesterday and then and then i woke up today and i was this may be too much information but i was taking a dump (laughs) <laughs> and I listened to it on the on the toilet, and then it was Yanny, and it was Yanny clear as day. And I couldn't like. There's no Laurel there. I don't that know happened to me with the blue gold dress. That yeah. uh, I I saw it on my Twitter feed, and I was like, "Oh, that's a why? Why is there a picture of a gold dress?" I scrolled, and I saw people talking about it, and then I scrolled back up, and it was blue. Yeah, and it never, and then f- henceforth it stayed blue. Like I could never retrieve the gold. Yeah, it's not like a Necker cube or one of those. No, where exactly. You can... Yeah, it, and it's not like how you know uh, expectation driven. Like in some cases where, like they play backward masked. They say that there's secret messages backwards, and right. they tell you what it says, and then you hear it, but you would never have heard it if they hadn't told you. 
Um, you know, because I thought, okay, well, maybe I'm hearing Yanni because the question says Yanni or Laurel. And so, uh, like, Yanni is the top of mind. Um, but that clearly isn't an explanation. And it looks like there are a bunch of explanations. Um, yeah, it's something to do with the frequencies, high frequencies. I think Yanni is people who are older are more likely to hear Laurel. Uh, that totally, totally fits the data I, between me and you. <laughs> <laughs> Except that I became younger. Like, I got younger yeah, overnight. You, you you drank the blood of a Christian baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone, like, now you now I get why we've been, I've been doing that my whole life. <laughs> You're actually 162. <laughs> be honest at this point i thought it, it's like fasting on yom kippur or like you know having a seder like i was just doing it for the ritual not for any <laughs> real benefits but turns out god does have reasons for for these things yeah there's a there's a new one that's also kind of interesting um, by, the, by the way if you start eating pork your dick will get bigger <laughs> really yeah. it's too big already though but i do kind of want to put another thomas nagel quote on it tattoo another one and i don't really have any room right now so all right i'll have some bacon yeah i have the whole uh what it's like to be a bat essay tattoo. <laughs> uh yeah, it's interesting i love these things um, there's another cool one, which is, this is one where you can voluntarily hear what you want. There's mm -hmm. one going around brainstorm oh, yeah. or green needle. And if you just think of one word in your mind, uh, yeah. that's the one you'll hear clearly. And the other, and if you think green needle, then you'll hear green needle, brainstorm, right, like green needle. The yeah. expectation based one. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Um, it, it sort of shows how we construct reality we i was gonna say you know metaphysically now i'm torn is is it which one is it really <laughs> what was the speaker's intent when they uttered it <laughs> this really <laughs> depends on whether yeah you subscribe to a causal theory of, re of reference <laughs> or a descriptive theory of reference yeah. we do we see how we bring it back see we, how professional all, professional all, no this is like we are constructing worlds. I, I just heard there's this interesting Mike, Michael Pollan book that just came out about psychedelics, which we uh -huh. should read. And one of the sort of takeaways from a lot of the psychedelics research now is the extent to which, we always knew this to some degree, but the extent to which reality for us is a construction, like our brain is sort of predicting things that we see. And so it just lends this degree of subjectivity towards how we perceive the world that we're starting to understand more and more. And speaking of what our brain is doing, that yes. um, leads us into our first segment, which is kind of an homage, an homage to uh, a guy we both like that you alerted me to, Neuroskeptic. Neuroskeptic, our, our favorite anonymous, pseudonymous uh, neuroscientist. If you haven't seen his Twitter account, we'll obviously put a link uh, in the show notes to his Twitter account. Um, I don't know for how many years he's been doing this, but <laughs> the reason we got to talking about this is because more and more uh, he, when we're looking for things like opening segments, like just crazy shit to talk about, uh, his Twitter feed is just a reliable source. It's like a, <laughs> it's a gold mine for it's, 
Uh, it's it's beautiful. We've had so many. We usually credit him, but maybe not always. And and sometimes we probably just don't even remember that that's where we first learned about that's right. it. Um, that's right. So so yeah. So we decided that we would pick some of our favorite neuroskeptic tweets. But before we get to the awesome neuroskeptic tweets, in the second segment, we will come back with a discussion of a a real scientific paper. That finally answers the question that moral psychologists have been wondering for, for quite some time. Do your judgments on trolley dilemmas actually predict your real-world behavior? Now, I should say, um, Neuroskeptic uh, is what we know about him, and I'm sure, pe- I don't know, perhaps people in neuroscience actually know who he is, but to the public, he, it's not clear who he is. Other than that, he is a neuroscientist, he's English, and he's a man. And English, like British? British, yeah. yeah, and and he um, also has a great blog on Discover Magazine, um, where he actually, you know, gets in depth. Like they're they're less jokey, right? They're actually he he'll talk about a specific paper um, in and serious issues within the discipline. Yeah. What so, do you think of the anonymity issue? You told me that there's some controversy about that. Yeah, so he actually, somebody wrote about him specifically saying, well, look, like this person is criticizing the work of others without actually allowing anybody to to know who he is. And so they, they perhaps thought this was without honor. I don't know if they did, but, but there, the, the spirit of it was, Hey, how can you take pot shots when you're hiding under the cover of anonymity? And he actually responded to this and he was like, you know, it's, I'll put a link to this, this response as well. He's saying, you can find me. I'm here. I have an online presence. You can engage with me. I will talk to you. It's just that I want to keep, you know, my job life separate from, from this. Like there's no lack of, he has certainly no lack of willingness to engage in dialogue. And if you know him as neuroskeptic, why do you, you and, and you engage with him as neuroskeptic, you know what he thinks, you know his ideas, then, then I don't, I don't think that he's doing anything foul or dishonest. Um, in fact, he's probably protecting himself in a way that, that a lot of people might. <laughs> I wonder sort of what it allows him to do that he wouldn't otherwise. Like, I, you don't get the sense that if he was outed, it would be like a huge scandal. I think, I think yeah, I think that's true now. It, you know, it might have been that he was young in his field. And, and the truth is that there was an explosion of neuroscience kind of research that was so popular that it required a voice. You know, yeah. it needed somebody to point out the bullshit. And maybe he just wasn't at the stage of his career or didn't want to risk yeah. being being targeted as, as the one who, who, who is doing this. But, but I think that he provided a great service. I mean, I think... Certainly. You know, as... <laughs> yeah, for us, for, so he gets really. If you're a thoughtful neuroscientist, like you should follow, you should follow his his blog and and his Twitter feed. But also, if you just want to hear funny titles, <laughs> who is this masked man? <laughs> it is. I mean, it, it. I think it maps on perfectly, right, to the whole Batman. Uh, <laughs> you know, why does he have to be anonymous? He's gonna love this. He's gonna yeah. love it. <laughs> Do you think his tweets are in a like almost comically deep voice <laughs> when he when he t- when he tweets <laughs> compared to his actual voice. 
is that would be that would be hilarious. Well, our jo- <laughs> our our goal here is certainly not to tarnish his reputation, but to express our gratitude by alerting readers to some of our recent favorites. In my case, yeah, pretty recent. And I I, I don't know how you approach this list to the extent that it's a list. I tried to. There, there's kind of three categories of things that I love that he does. Yeah, I so I stayed away from the more somber, interesting. Here's a really interesting article. Um, even when the article itself was very interesting, because that's not the value that that he adds for this particular show. So we actually reached out to Neuroskeptic on Twitter and told him that we were planning to do this a uh, little homage. He replied to us, "Wow, thanks. I think if one post sums me up, it's this." And it, <laughs> he wrote up on his Discover blog. Um, a, a debate that emerged about whether or not a fetus, a male fetus, is actually jerking off. So some authors, so it's called fetal onanism, a surprising scientific debate. So in, in this journal, Prenatal Diagnosis, a couple of people showed ultrasound images of a fetus, a male fetus, that they claimed showed clear evidence for self-pleasure of the fetus in utero. And then there was a response, uh, as he as Neuroskeptic describes it, a rather scathing comment. Other authors said they've made a huge error. That's not the penis. That's actually, it's not the penis in the, for, the foreskin of the penis as they originally interpreted. That picture is a grasped normal finger with five, normal hand with five fingers. What the authors mark as foreskin is the normal index finger. And so they tried to point out where in the original image the penis actually was. And then (laughs) they responded, the original authors responded and said, no, we just don't agree, but almost in a streetwise fashion, but come over to our hospital and we'll show you. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Which actually leads, I, I almost segued into this when we were talking about the Yanni Laurel thing, because here's another case (laughs) where there's a clear image but both people looking at it are just convinced. They're right. just convinced that, that one is the... Uh, so he says, so who is right? This, I'm quoting Neuroskeptic. So who is right in this dispute? I'm not sure, but what does seem certain is that the fetal masturbation controversy ranks among such great scientific debates of the past as Huxley, Wilberforce, Bohr, Einstein, and Gould, Dawkins. <laughs> uh, we'll, maybe we'll never know. Actually, if you look at the image... Um, there's a little iPhone with Pornhub loaded on it. So it's pretty clear to me. <laughs> that actually relates. Maybe I'll, we could use that as a bridge. One of the ones that he linked to is a study about whether people would pay for porn if it was right. free and how That's much. right. And that was, that was a great example of a paper that is kind of in our wheelhouse. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a very, it's a great behavioral economics task, you know. Willie, so they, they were asked if there was only one source of porn in in the whole world that you had access to, and you had it, and you had to pay. How much would you be willing to pay? What's your and, answer? I mean, it's a really good. Like, there's a lot of factors that you have to take into account. <laughs> like, how would it? Like, I could just do it totally. Like, nobody would ever know that I did it. <laughs> yes. Like in the yeah. like like you like in the early nineties, you know, right? But like I did. That's the thing is like I didn't really pay for it, you know. But I don't know yeah. if it was out of more Im- 
embarrassment. I don't know. There's something like that feels dirty about paying for it and and it feels like but using it for free is like just what like a healthy uh, (laughs) individual would would obviously do but if you pay for it it's like you get this you're now in the market you're in the market mentality in the alan fisk categorization you know you're not you've you've transactions dirty up what would otherwise be a a sacred moment between nude images and and your penis i mean do you feel that way uh absolutely like i feel like like it is totally it in some ways because it's a reflection of my character that i want it so much that i would put money up for it right and i don't want to be the kind of person who needs it so badly that i'd pay money for it and then just by analogy sort of feels like like paying a sex worker to have sex which i don't Another one I had actually is a case study of preferential bestiality, which challenges the claim that people who have sex with animals are generally of below average intelligence and come from <laughs> rural areas. I know. I hate that stereotype. I know. You know? <laughs> Don't lump us all into category. Don't stereotype us zoophiliacs so those are two that i just are well yeah there's a couple that that's just sort of in our <laughs> wheelhouse all right so this is neuroskeptics tweet he says i tweet a lot of wtf papers but this one truly takes the biscuit the title alone is not safe for life and the title then he links from a journal of forensic legal medicine Similar mechanisms of traumatic rectal injuries in patients who had anal sex with animals to those who were butt-fisted by human sexual partner. <laughs> That's the actual... Apparently, there's some debate as to what kind of damage is caused by being butt-fisted versus <laughs> by being penetrated by a large animal. That was the problem that the researchers set out to to yeah. to work so, on. Yeah, so so there's so a sentence from the abstract. Among zoophiles, the mode of harm occurs through blood-engorged interlocked penis that causes tissue lacerations upon retraction from an anus. In people experimenting with fisting, repetitive stretching with anal canal and of external sphincter causes the internal injuries. <laughs> it's very very important to distinguish between these two. <laughs> because because you'll have that moment as a doctor when somebody comes in with an injured anus. And they'll be lying to you that it was butt fisting, and you'll just be able to tell by the injuries that it was an animal. <laughs> yeah, I get, or they'll be lying uh, the other way. <laughs> the other way, yeah. Well, I guess that's why it's in the Journal of Forensic Legal Medicine. Uh, uh, another one: pedophiles shown pics of baby animals. <laughs> so they recruited a bunch of pedophiles and showed them uh neuroskeptic says one of the more disturbing fmri papers i've seen pedophiles were shown images of baby animals they didn't find them erotic but did show enhanced quote-unquote nurturing response aka reverse insula inference from anterior insula blobs (laughs) so they concluded that it's not that the pedophiles actually want to have sex with baby animals it's just that they feel more nurturing to them and they argue that maybe maybe we should understand pedophiles as is being driven in part by a desire to nurture children um not controversial at all is this sponsored by <laughs> nambla <laughs> yeah uh they okay, can't my... be all bad they want to nurture <laughs> that little baby kitten that's also one where wait how did they measure nurturing effect one of the just they revert the reverse inference by looking at a particular area of the brain that has been shown to be involved in 
in nurturing. But this is, you know, once again, an instance of, of criticism in one sentence because, you know, the insula is implicated in a ton of shit. Right. And so just because it's been shown to be implicated in nurturing doesn't mean that by looking at the insula, you can conclude that people were feeling nurturing. Yeah. Neuroskeptic had a tweet um, sort of on this reverse inference uh, problem where he said neuroscience is basically one big crime scene. Many brain areas have been, quote unquote, implicated in different acts, but few have been convicted yet. It's like we don't we can't really tell what's going on in the mind from looking at brain activation. Um, I mean, maybe sometimes we can, but it's under very, very specific conditions. And usually you already know what the behavior is that you're looking for, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's not the other way around. Right. Here's one in snack food fMRI. Potato chips versus zucchini stimulation led to significant connectivity changes. That's the the title of the paper, and then he sums it up as brain responds to different stimuli differently, exclamation point. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like, really? So the brain doesn't just stay exactly the same whether you eat zucchini or whether you eat potato chips. Right. This is becoming like a serious problem that I know we call attention to, but I... so. I have a friend who works for NPR. She does documentary kind of features. And right now she's doing a really long investigation into how people teach children to read in public schools. And there is um, there's this new, new way, or it's not that new, it's been around for 30, 30 years, that has been shown over many trials in many different student populations to be way more effective in teaching children to read than the current methods that are used in most curricula. You see these effects that are just striking in terms of how it helps people who struggle with reading learn how to read. And so she's telling me about this, and then she's like, you can see that the brain is changing in these in yeah. these kids that are taught in this way and then are, are 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 coming to learn how to read like that's actually changing their brains and it's and so yeah. of course i say to her and i i i, I love she's old friend i've known her forever she uh, i'm like well isn't the the important result that it's actually like significantly more effective in teaching the kids to read. Of course, that's going to have an effect in in brain change. Like that's going to change a person's brain when they learn that something that significant to navigating your your daily lives, like the ability to read. Of course, that's going to have neural consequences from that. And she's like, "Yeah, I mean, I know you're you're right, but um, but if you, but this is the way to get attention for this." for this research it's like not the fact that it's actually teaching kids to read but that there are brain changes is the only way to like get people to pay attention to this research that's just exactly the wrong thing for deciding yeah. whether or not a a, a, a an effect a, like a, a a way of teaching is effective or not <laughs> yes this is one of the things that that i think he's doing really good work to try to protect against and it, it gets a little bit to the issue of you know when when is mockery useful to change people's mind and i think that this is a case in which it's actually this his twitter account is is a good use he's never mean 
you know, he never calls out specific authors. Uh, he just sort of posts with comment and it's insightful comment. Um, and I think you can learn a whole bunch about what good neuroscience is, what it can and can't say by reading this kind of stuff, like by reading his. Um, yeah. And, and especially what it can't say. Exactly. One more example along those lines. Uh, he, he tweeted a headline from the sun.co.uk. Women really do overthink things with an exclamation point. Scans reveal that they have more active brains than men. This <laughs> is just like a scan, like just overall brain activation between men and women and concluding that women overthink things. <laughs> I mean, that's one where it's definitely true that women overthink things. But this, but this just isn't evidence for it. Yeah. It's not good. <laughs> exactly. It's definitely like a definitive result. Yeah. Um, here's one where I don't know, like, if this is a... He has a little joke, but it could be a, a joke that isn't making fun of the article. So the, the, the study is... Uh, it says, fMRI study asks, why do certain people end up liking each other more than others? And then he says fmri love you uh, <laughs> so i thought at first that it was that he's making fun of the study but then i looked at the abstract have you seen this no i did i saw the tweet but i didn't click on the, the actual. so here's the abstract why do certain group members end up liking each other more than others how does affective reciprocity arise in human groups the prediction of interpersonal sentiment has been a long-standing pursuit in the social sciences. We combined fMRI and longitudinal so social network data. Longitudinal social network. <laughs> I think you need to be join whatever program your friend was telling you about. <laughs> social <laughs> network data to test whether newly acquainted group members reward-related neural responses to images of one another's faces predict their future interpersonal sentiment even many months later. So they just did this test where just how you respond to a face uh, in the brain, will that predict how much you like the person down right. the line? Yeah, that doesn't seem so bad. And so I, I, like I have to issue this caveat because we always get a ton of, of response when we, we, when we bash uh, neuroscience. And there are specific reasons that we've outlined for what we, what we mean by bad inferences from cognitive neuroscience. But there's always good work. Uh, it's just a lot of people just aren't careful. And sure, you could do this for social psychology easily. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, you could. Yeah. We're, I think what we're responding to is this general belief that in order for it to be scientific, it must be in the brain. And these are seem to result more funding and more attention. But this is not to say, you know, some of my best friends are neuroscientists. So, so. you think that this paper is actually... I mean, I believe that it might be predictive, right? And that's where if you show, but the question comes with like, what value does it add there? Because there probably are a lot of things that are predictive of long-term liking. I'm, I'm sure you could also do uh, fa emotional face, facial responses uh, right. to people. And that might predict. Here's, here's one that I just loved. So time slows down for white people. <laughs> When they're interacting with a black person uh, or when they're, sorry, when they're looking at black faces. So this is an article called Distortion in Time Perception as a Result of Concern About Appearing Biased. Two experiments illustrate that the perception 
of a given time duration slows when white participants observe faces of black men, but only if participants are concerned with appearing biased. So basically, it just, you know, time time subjectively seems to go slower for pe- for white people who are nervous when they're interacting with a black person. The title is great. Time <laughs> slows down for white people. <laughs> yeah. Just like the metaphysical implications of that are pretty astounding. To which I would say then those white people should marry a black person because they would live forever. (laughs) (laughs) Here's one again where it's like a a cautionary note of skepticism, but uh, he he tweets, actual left brain characteristics, can see the right side of space, can control right half of body, in most cases can speak. And then he links to this lifehack.org Signs your left brain dominant and how to make good use of it. And it goes lists all these left brain characteristics. Excellent goal setters. Good at reading directions. Sharp memory skills. Math and science subjects come very easily. Excellent logical problem-solving skills. Detail-oriented. Like, just all of that is just, I guess, a, a just a myth that... Like, yeah. But that has just pervaded like it's just become a part of popular way of understanding brains absolutely and and really like all all people are saying at this point is i am this kind of like if you divide the world up into two categories i am this kind of person right you know there's no there's no uh actual attempt at linking it to what it what your brain is doing on one side more than the other but just it's, it might as well be, you know, like, which Game of Thrones character are you? But with only two options, <laughs> you know? The first reply to this tweet is, do you ever get tired of debunking this kind of thing, along with <laughs> learning styles and other stuff? It seems once a simple idea has a bit of airtime, some people cling so tenaciously, it they can't recognize evidence again. Yeah. I wonder if he does. It seems it seems like he's been going for a long time, like thirty five thousand tweets. Here is uh, one of my favorites. I said I was moving away from from the sex stuff. Porn is associated. <laughs> porn is associated with low self satisfaction. Pornography use is negatively associated with sexual satisfaction in American men, but not among men who held a low opinion of the Bible. <laughs> dot 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 <laughs> check bait atheists this was i was quoting neuroscientists here wait <laughs> it's like it's so oh, wait the, the people <laughs> who have a low opinion of the bible don't feel they're actually yeah they're not they don't have lower self-satisfaction they don't show a link between porn use and low sex satisfaction so it's, it's checkmate a, like check check bait that's <laughs> what he said yeah check bait B-A-T-E, yeah. Yeah. But then it would seem like it's good to be an atheist, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it 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 is a it is good to be an atheist. I I think there is a, a, a in this sense. What a just a random thing to stick together. I think you know, if you feel guilty about watching porn, maybe that affects your sex life. Free yourself. Free yourself of of this and remember uh, i think the takeaway is men who have sex with animals 
are not generally of below average intelligence. That's right. Don't let anybody tell you you're dumb. (laughs) (laughs) All right. When we come back, we'll talk about a paper that tests whether... Finally answers the question. Yeah, whether our responses in trolley problem cases are predictive of our actual behavior. We'd like to take a moment now to thank this week's sponsor, Away. Away's mission is simple. It's to make your life easier by making a better carry-on. It really is as simple as that. And um, I have one, and I love it. And let me tell you why it works uh, based on some of my own travel experience. I've avoided carry-on luggage, at least the suitcase kind, for a while because they just don't seem worth it. There's always something going wrong with them. They can't fit as much as it looks like they can fit. They're usually heavier than a duffel bag or a shoulder bag. And if the wheels go wrong, it's a miserable trip through the airport. But Away solves these problems and gives you even more features. First of all, these carry-ons are super lightweight. The moment I got mine, I couldn't believe how light it was. They're made of polycarbonate. Um, It's strong and durable, but surprisingly light. They have quality 360-degree spinner wheels. They also have one of those TSA combination locks at the top so you can lock everything. Um, And they even have, I love this touch because I'm very easily disgusted, a removable laundry bag to keep your dirty clothes separate from your clean ones. Um, But perhaps the coolest feature and one that everybody talks about is that there's a built-in USB charger right in the suitcase. So when you, like me, are sitting waiting for your flight and maybe even kicking your feet up onto your carry-on, you can charge your phone or your tablet. In fact, the battery is so so strong that it can charge your iPhone up to five times. Um, So I am actually really looking forward to using this suitcase um, just for that feature. If you want to, you can try it out for 100 days. And if at any point you decide it's not for you, they'll take it back for a full refund. No questions asked. But if you do keep it, there's a lifetime warranty. So if anything breaks, they'll fix it or replace your product. Um, so if you'd like to try out Away Carry On, they have four different sizes and a number of different colors, and you want $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash badwizards and use promo code badwizards during checkout. Again, visit awaytravel.com slash badwizards with promo code badwizards during checkout. We'd like to thank Away Travel for sponsoring Very Bad Wizards.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time, we'd like to take a moment to thank all of the people who get in touch with us in all the different ways that you do. We really appreciate it. Uh, one of them I just saw on the subreddit, uh, the Very Bad Wizards subreddit, which is one of the ways you can uh, <laughs> contribute to the discussion around our episodes. Somebody posted emailing the very bad wizards, a story of hope and defeat. It's a story about emailing us, and I guess we didn't respond, and and just the the whole journey of that. And we we say this a lot, but when you email us, we read your emails. Whether we respond or not really has very little to do with the email and has virtually everything to do with A, how busy we are, and B, <laughs> our circumstances when we're reading it. So if right. we're reading it on our phone or something like that as we're out, then we can't really respond to that. And, but mostly it's just how busy we are. If we responded to every email, we wouldn't have time to do the podcast. No, like. we barely do as it, as it is. It's a, fun, it's a funny post, though. Like I think it's joking mostly, but I'm not fully <laughs> sure. Uh, I think most of our listeners probably know that uh, that just keeping up with emails for your actual job is is almost a full time job on its own. If you knew some of the other people we weren't emailing back, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then you then nobody would feel that uh, insulted. Uh, Like people like who's have huge impact on my future career. Like I'm struggling to reply to. Anyway, so, but we really appreciate getting your emails and all the ways that you, so when you tweet us at Tamler, at Very Bad Wizards, at Peas, um, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can go to our Facebook page. There's usually a nice discussion of each episode on our Facebook page and also on Reddit. Reddit has expanded. There's almost 2,000 people on it right now. And there's some funny stuff, some good stuff, some really interesting stuff, um, all that's related. And that's really something that you guys run and we have very little to do with. We pop on there sometimes. We defend our honor if we have to (laughs) when you guys start bitching about sponsors. Uh, But but, but yeah, but everybody's, you know, once it has not yet happened that that this is not the case that that every time i respond i get good engagement it's a good community it um, is yeah i think we have one of the best communities that you could hope in for. all of in all of reddit in all of well yeah which isn't which is not a the highest bar that you could set but still um and if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways you can go to our Support page on vbw.fm. That's right. Right, and yeah. you can um, and you can choose one of three different ways, three or four different ways of supporting us in these tangible ways. You can uh, give us a one-time PayPal donation. You can click on the Amazon link and then do your normal shopping, and we will get a small cut of that. And you can become one of our beloved Patreon patrons uh we really appreciate our that's the one thing that we sort of can expect and that's really uh it it really means a lot to us and we just scheduled the session to 
record a another Black Mirror bonus episode for our $2 and up subscribers. Um, we're going to do probably next episode, right? The the topic yeah. that our, yeah. uh, was voted on by our Patreon supporters for what, and that, that is going to be personality. That's um, right. The personality psychology. So you're going to have to, again, they always, they always vote for one that you're, you it's have gonna to do give more, me work. more work it's than I do. Dora, I'll assign you, I'll assign you some work. You'll assign me um, some reading. And basically, and, I want you to go on Facebook and take all of the personality quizzes that you can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to do that because I like the ones where I like the Lori Santos one where it was only virtues. Like, and it was just, which of these virtues do I have yeah. more than others? Um, <laughs> you know, you know, you don't like uh, which Sex in the City character are you? <laughs> are you? <laughs> as long as I'm not Sarah Jessica Parker, <laughs> uh, you can go to Teespring and buy some of our merch. We have to, we have to be more active on that. Maybe get another campaign going. But there's some good stuff on that, and you can, whenever we do have a sponsor, which isn't always, but whenever we do. Um, Take the discount. We really don't. We don't. We don't promote anything that we don't actually like. You know, yeah, that's, like that's, we have these the, these things. I did really eat RX bars on my so, MS one fifty, and some and uh, you know, like I'm, uh, I'm not lying. We're not lying to you with these things. We're not. No, uh, we're just ba- we we're just maybe bad at. at- <laughs> <laughs> sounding sincere. Sounding sincere. Uh, yeah, somebody yeah. asked me the other day, like, that was all, the, the Casper stuff is all bullshit, right? You don't actually have a mattress. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, I'm doing my job wrong. Like, by now, I'm like, yes. My simple In, contact story is true. Even this, that was all true. Like, all the, the, the stuff about, like, the pain in the ass of scheduling. The Even the taffy one. <laughs> Like, that was a little window into my childhood, like some kind of undiscovered, I don't know, something like I have to work through or maybe take one of those psychedelic Peruvian drugs to just really get to the bottom of the taffy. So, so, so yeah, thank you to everybody. Um, I, I should mention, I've mentioned on Twitter, but it's always best to mention here, if you have a podcast uh, player that supports chapters... Um, like I use Overcast on my iPhone um, for the last few episodes and, and henceforth um, you can use chapters to navigate through different parts of the podcast which takes a little more work but you're worth it everyone all of you are worth it yes um, before we move on there are we don't often do this but but it just so happens that a, a couple of, of our friends have uh, started podcasts i i think that that really it's because of us right i mean they're inspired sam harris started a podcast because of us I he, think. He, in fact yeah in yeah that's true um and thanks to sam by the way for releasing that waking up episode on the day my book released that was given though i don't have i'm already fading back into obscurity that was a really <laughs> nice way to to launch the book and i think it's been really helpful for sales too so um, uh our very own uh yoel at yorl uh is is i wouldn't call i don't know if it's cheating on us because you know he's he's always waiting for us to invite him so i can understand why he would he would want yeah. to start his own podcast but he and mickey inslicht 
um, are starting a podcast called Two Psychologists, Four Beers, which I think it's going to be heavily about sort of social psychology, um, but they're also drinking (laughs) while they do it. Um, And another... You should do one like a philosopher and psychologist and 12 lines of coke. (laughs) (laughs) One eight ball. Maybe 12 bumps. Yeah, 12 Um, bumps. (laughs) Another good friend of mine, Michael Sargent, has a podcast called Tatter that is now about 12 episodes in. Um, We'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Uh, Michael Sargent's is way, way more produced than ours. He goes out of his way to actually actually edit. And it's a lot of politics, uh, um, political discussion interviews with with politicians uh, that that he gets in contact with there in Maine. Uh, but he's just a really intelligent guy, very very sharp guy. So uh, check those out. And there's one that I will also promote since we're doing that: the Political Theory <laughs> Review by Jeff Church. He's a U of H political theorist here, really intelligent guy. He has a lot of really it's, it's an interview podcast, and he brings a lot of good people on that. The Political Theory Review. Yeah, we'll put a link to all those. I think it's good to spread the love every once in a while, but not not very very often. And don't we, come to us and tell us to uh, promote your podcast. These are That's good friends. The danger these are, of these this. are all very good friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So for this segment, we decided to uh, talk about uh, a recent paper called "Of Mice, Men, and Trolleys: Colon Hypothetical Judgment versus Real Life Behavior in Trolley Style Moral Dilemmas." So this is an attempt uh, tackling the ostensible problem, and I'll say why I say uh, ostensible, uh, of checking whether or not our answers on these trolley dilemmas, which we've talked about quite a bit. If you <laughs> if you listen to Very Bad Wizards, you know uh, the word trolley is almost as popular as the word intuition. Um, it's an attempt at... Sh- at, at Figuring out whether or not these judgments in in these sacrificial moral dilemmas that that like like the trolley problem or like the footbridge problem where you have to sacrifice one person in order to save five, um, whether or not people's judgments on those predict real world behavior. It, the interesting part of this paper is that they tried to actually have participants engage in a real world sacrificial behavior. Obviously, they can't do that with with real people some people have attempted to do this using virtual reality um but i'm we not sure about that, that that youtube yeah. red guy yeah uh, oh, and then the youtube red guy yeah it wasn't a real ex- experiment but he actually went out of his way to put people in real like um and they had a rib board from pepper yeah, I, yeah irb who he yeah. just irb didn't i say that you said rib i i i thought i said irb <laughs> Luckily, we have a record. It's a Yanny Laurel thing. (laughs) If you're young, you heard it as IRB. Uh, Yeah, he had the Pepperdine I. Oh, yeah, it's hard. IRB (laughs) review. And he was able to convince them in like three minutes uh, after they were initially scheduled. Yeah, on video with Mega (laughs) Bun. It's Um, so easy. (laughs) It's amazing. Right, so there there've been there've been sort of attempts at at correlating your scores on these your answers to these tasks. So so typically if you want to measure sort of as an individual difference whether or not somebody's more likely to be utilitarian or consequentialist or deontological, 
you set up these scenarios where usually it's an innocent person has to be harmed in order uh, for a greater good to come about. You give people a set of these 10, 15, I think uh, we've used a set of 14, and you get an overall score. The question here is, does this actually say anything about what people would do in real life? So what they had people do in this study is they took that battery of sacrificial moral dilemmas that we've, we've, many people have used, along with a whole bunch of other individual difference measures, and then one set of people, they brought them in to the lab, and they asked them this uh, hypothetical question. Imagine the following situation. You are participating in an experiment as part of a course in social psychology. Previously, you were asked to respond to several moral dilemmas, much like the ones you have answered. You are guided to the lab. The door opens and you see two cages with mice, one cage containing a single mouse, one cage containing five mice. An electroshock is hooked up to both cages. The experimenter tells you that after a 20-second timer, an electrical shock will be administered to the cage with the five mice, but that you can push a button to redirect the shock to the cage containing the single mouse. The shocks are very painful but non-lethal. Would you press the button? That is, would you shock the individual mouse? Would you divert, divert the electrical trolley and shock the single mouse to save the five mice? And so, so half from of the being participants shocked. from being shocked. So, so roughly half of the, the people got this hypothetical. They answered um, what they would do. But the other group, they actually brought them into the lab and actually had mice in a cage, five mice in one cage, one mouse in another cage and uh, had a setup that led them to believe that this would actually happen, right? Sort of a convincing setup. Most people believed it, um, where they were, they were told, look, here's the 20-second timer. At the end of those 20 seconds, for sure, those five mice are going to receive a painful shock. But if you push this button, um, only that one mouse will receive the painful shock. And so this was their measure of real-world behavior. That is, would people act as they said they would act, and would people act as their score on these overall sort of consequentialist deontological uh, uh, measures would predict? Just um, to be clear, they didn't test whether they would act the way they said they would act in the sense that the same people got the hypothetical uh, mouse scenario got, also got the real-life mouse um, decision. Um, right. That's a, that's a good question because I thought that they did, but let me just really quickly. Yeah, no. So I think that the 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 two group, everybody was given the battery of are you yes, consequentialist right. or deontologist, and then one was given hypothetical, the other was given was the given real, the real world behavior, right? So the may, question that yeah, makes sense, ahead. right? Like yeah, because yeah, other yeah, like. Yeah. People are going to be affected by what they just said That's right. that That's they right. would do. That's right, yeah. yeah. So so the analyses um, were essentially taking this consequentialism score um, and seeing whether it predicted consequentialist behavior as measured by the real-world uh, task or um, whether it predicted in the other group the hypothetical answer that they gave. Um, now, no mice were actually shocked if, if any of you were nervous, they were not actually shocked. At the end of the 20 seconds, they were just told that it was a setup. They weren't actually shocked. But like before we get into the results, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the premises <laughs> here. Yeah, because there's a lot of things 
to untangle here. Yeah. So the first, which which bugs me, is that there seems to be among many people uh, this this belief that in order for a judgment to be valid, like a moral judgment to be valid, that it ought to track behavior. And right. and. I think anybody who who is really a moral psychologist, um, you know, either in philosophy or in psychology, wouldn't wouldn't put their money on that. Like, I mean, if if I'm if I firmly believe that uh, that I should do the consequentialist thing, or that it is morally appropriate to do the consequentialist thing, um, there are a number of things that might prevent me from doing it. Uh, first of all, all of the qualifications that go into these into these dilemmas rarely occur in real life. So usually, usually the scenario you're confronted with would be more complicated. You know, you couldn't, it wouldn't be a case where nobody will ever find out or anything like that. Um, but second, you know, there, you can really just be genuinely interested in judgment, whether or not you think that this is the ethical thing to do or not. So that's why oftentimes people will just ask, do you think it would be the right thing to do? Or do you think a person should be blamed for doing it? Um, and sometimes they're asked, "Will would you actually do it?" But I think that it's it's important to distinguish. You know, in some cases, obviously, you want response to be correlated with behavior, and and there are cases in which it would be invalid. So if you said, "Would you pay a hundred dollars for porn?" Um, and I said yes, but then in fact I don't, then you could say, "Okay, that was that was the question was trying to tap the behavior." But in the case of moral judgment, what you're trying to tap is that judgment, that ethical judgment, right? And you could you could think ethical judgments or moral judgments are important for all sorts of reasons. It's, even if I would be incapable, maybe I'm too, you know, I'm yeah. There's weakness of will, right? weakness of will. You know, I'm I'm just scared, right? I, it t- it takes a lot to to have the sort of metal to to push someone to their death, for instance. Um, but still, go along thinking that it's the right thing to do, and. And importantly, if people think that it's the wrong thing to do, they would judge others and they might punish them. They might, you know, there's all sorts of things that judgment uh, in these scenarios would be, would, it would make the judgment itself worth studying. But and especially like in a 20 second timer, right? Where like yeah. they really just don't have time to think about it. And all of a sudden, they're faced with this decision. I mean, you think about all the situationist studies and or, or think of Kitty Genovese. And I know yeah. all these things are more complicated. But everyone would say, of course, you should call the police. And yeah. they would always. And yet, like, because of all these effects, like, it's often hard to do what you clearly think would be the right thing to do if you're asked uh, removed from that situation. So right. it certainly and, doesn't invalidate the judgment about no, what and, and you I, ought to do if you can't bring yourself to do it at that time. Exactly. Especially if you it, feel guilty about not doing it or if you feel, you know. That's right. And I think that, that when you just ask judgment questions like, do you think this is the right or the wrong thing to do? Um, you might be tapping into... Um, into, for instance, what kinds of public policies people would endorse or vote for, or what kind of leaders they would condemn or praise for making a consequentialist decision. Nowhere in there, I think, is the claim that behavior needs to be tracked by that judgment. I, I just don't think that's 
when I study people's responses to these moral judgments, I I have never thought that this is actually I'm not it's not even that I know that that they would be weak of will. I might think that they might not be inclined to do it, but nonetheless think it's wrong. But at the same time, I think there then there are certain kinds of cases where you might say, I don't think you really believe it, even though you say you do. So yeah. it's not that that's never a... So, for example, like, if you are a utilitarian, um, you might be committed to thinking that you... I mean, this is a tough case. I, I'm actually interested in what you say about this. You're obligated to give up a kidney to save a person's life, yeah. right? Um, that's the utilitarian calculus seems to fall squarely in that camp that we're doing something wrong every day. We don't give up one of our kidneys and yet you don't in any way feel compelled to give up one of your kidneys. You don't judge people harshly for not giving up their uh, kidneys. Yeah, right. And so you don't blame them, you don't feel you don't really feel any guilt about not yeah. doing it. So there They're is right. a sense in which maybe you say you judge that to be obligatory without actually really believing it. Yeah, that's it, that I think that's really important uh, distinction to be made because I think that um for one, I think that these measures ought to at least track other judgments. So if you said that you were a utilitarian or consequentialist and when it came time, you did not believe that it was obligatory for you to give up your kidney, I would say then those measures aren't good at tracking your consequentialist thoughts, your ethic, your actual ethical view. So I would want these measures to be correlated with um, judgments about about things like public policies um, or 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 the the behaviors of other people. Wait, so I'm making a slightly different point, though. Yeah, no, I know. So, so I wanted to distinguish between the things that I think it ought to track. Like that would yeah. invalidate it. So I think that it should track your your blame for others, um, your ethical judgments. Um, you you should say that you believe something to be right or wrong um, in the appropriate way. That if you say you're a consequentialist or you say you're a deontologist, that all I think is important for validating um, these measures. And that in fact is is one one of the the parts of the critique that that. Uh, we made in our paper on consequentialism psychopathy was that no, this isn't actually tracking consequentialist beliefs. The the people who are responding this way are responding because they're emotionally calloused. Um, but then there's that further thing, which is does it motivate you at all to act? Uh, like so, take take the case of Paul Bloom, where he actually truly believes he says that it's good to that that it is wrong to eat meat. Uh, yes. but but then he he says uh not only is he uh not a vegetarian he is not even he doesn't even feel like weakness of the will he's he's not ocratic about it he says yeah. i'm not i don't even care enough to feel bad when i am eating meat but no but i really do believe that it's wrong there there's where i think huh yeah. what is what is believing that it's wrong me 
yeah like, that's that that was sort of the point yeah. that i was making is do you really believe something is wrong if it doesn't track any kind of practical difference yeah. in your life based on somebody you know com- when compared to somebody who doesn't believe that it's wrong other than that you answer one question differently <laughs> that's right, right. like yeah. do you believe that it's wrong yeah now so like re- regarding your first point here's where both of us might agree on this but i think i agree more than you do maybe based on what you just said i i think it's just insane to try to divide people up into consequentialist or deontologist like yeah. that, that's just not a real category of difference that people are for the most part just a grab bag of each and all these other things too yeah. that they really believe and so the idea that you can give somebody a series of 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 questions and scenarios and then say okay well this person is a consequentialist person or this person is a deontological person to me just seems completely just the wrong like at 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 a fundamental level the wrong way of trying to categorize people's psychology moral psychology i i no i i totally agree and i think that this is that it's baked baked into the experiments is is the belief that people are either one or other or the other and so when you ask people only two options you're gonna get one or the other right so it's sort of just baked into the methodology i actually think that it's at best at best what you could do is see under what conditions people are more likely to think consequential like as a consequentialist or as a deontologist but in there i right. would toss as a virtue theorist and that's why you know like the work that that um a lot of people including me have been doing on character like i think actually people are more likely and more often to think um in terms of people's character and and their virtues than than they are to think of the, their specific acts in a deontological or consequentialist fashion. So, so I think that it's it's baked in it's baked into it. You know. So if you want to say that, oh, you know, when I asked my parents about Hiroshima, they gave me a consequentialist response that it was it saved many future lives to drop the bomb on Hiroshima. That's fine. but in yeah, but in but in fact, they would reject that line of reasoning in in a whole lot of other domains, and so. Are they consequentialist? No. Did they believe in the consequentialist justification they gave for that act? Yeah, but probably insincerely. So, so why I could insincerely? Ask, well, like they probably did believe it. I, I, I think that it's more likely a case of wanting to believe it for other reasons, and then finding the recruiting the proper sort of language to justify it. You know, that's the motivated moral reasoning stuff that that I've I've argued for before. That yeah, the chip <laughs> the chip versus Tyrone. That that you you don't want to think that your country did something bad, and so you you recruit the the consequential response. But but get, you're right to say that it's not clear. They could be they could be sincere. So people could be maybe more better captured by what philosophers call particularism where people actually endorse different principles and those are guiding principles they just do it sort of you know they use different principles for different situations and and i think that that's that yeah that's what i say not necessarily insincerely i think 
you know, it's this like artifact of the way we've studied, and this is philosophy and psychology, this stuff that you might even suspect insincerity rather than just suspect that they're particularists and don't think that this one very simple ethical theory will encompass all of their judgments. That's right. right. So it's it's a fair point. And I was saying I was more making a a comment about my parents, not about whether or not that it's a, it's a, it's a being insincere. It's a, it's a further question that I don't think has been tackled because if you show inconsistency, which I, I believe this is probably a, a flaw in our argument in the motivated moral reasoning work, which is showing inconsistency doesn't necessarily mean that people aren't guided by principles, that principles aren't motivating uh, right. their, their behavior. It could be one of two things. It could be that they're deploying and reasoning and justifying based on the principle. It's just that the consistency that on the face of it you'd think would happen isn't there because at other times they are, uh, they're deploying a deontological. Now I will say though, I think there is a way of sometimes teasing that apart. And the way is like in your chip and Tyrone experiment, I think people would upon reflection reject the distinction that they're using. So I don't think they would, say that they were being particularist in that situation uh, and believe that that's the right thing. So that would be, were they presented with this kind of uh, clash in their beliefs? I think they would agree in that case, it was a kind of post hoc rationalization of some other thing that they had going on. So I think at some, there is a way of teasing it out, but often we don't even try to imagine what that would be. We just assume that they're either that they're being inconsistent or there's this default assumption that people subscribe to one very simple ethical theory and yeah. that departures from that are motivated reasoning of some yeah. kind. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right, right. So particularism, it's it's a theory that it's, it's a, a bit hard to wrap your head around um, given the focus on extreme consistency of, of these principles. Um, but I think it's one that deserves probably more attention than it's gotten. And certainly one that would be more likely to track the descriptive truth of people. Um, yeah. But, but, but now, yeah, all, we got stuck on these two things. All that said, I think that there is something interesting about just measuring differences in how you say you ought to act and differences in how you would actually act in those situations. In some ways, I think this study would be more interesting if they had a way of asking them how they would act in the mouse situation, brainwashing them to forget that they were asked that, uh, and then, uh, and then just seeing what they would do. That, that's, that would be kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, and they allude to this being sort of Milgram-esque, right? The, yeah. The Milgram didn't do that either. He didn't ask people first about the situation because obviously this becomes hard methodologically. But yeah, wipe their memory and see if they actually act. Because the other, the, the battery of, of sacrificial moral dilemmas, they're, they're more abstract and, and um, you know, it's, it's unclear that they would have the ability to predict um, in the way that people might be able to predict their own behavior in a very specific 
real life scenario. Okay, so but the second issue, I want to know what you think about this. And in fact, one of uh, our listeners who emailed us this uh, pointed it out. You know, they make they make a lot of noise about you know we're finally going to see whether or not these. Uh, your score on these sacrificial moral dilemmas predicts real world ethical behavior of the sort that really matters. And then they do. And then they put you in a, a study where, where five mice might get a shock. Um, and so sort of, sort of the arrogance of saying, we're finally going to do the study that, that predicts real world behavior you, you would think what they mean is making sacrificial decisions about, about people because nothing in the in the sacrificial moral dilemmas that we use as the battery has indicates anything about mice and people or for, shocking like for, yeah. even like shock- for fuck's <laughs> sake I kill mice you know I put traps out when I have mice in my house you know it's like I uh, yeah I, I well, think you very have a kind of sadistic quality. I actually bring them in I bring yeah. them in and I play a game. Yeah, just watch like them, running, watch yeah. them rise in the mousetrap and jerk off. <laughs> um, so I don't like doing it, but but yeah. I don't also don't like having mice in my in my house. Uh, so and 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 it's not even killing the mice, right? It's just giving them an uncomfortable shock for a couple of seconds, which I would I, do for like two bucks. You know, I mean, <laughs> I like you ask what I think of it. I think that under the circumstances what what it's given that they were not going to get by a real irb board something probably like that trolley thing where it it was a you know like a kind of a real life trolley dilemma where you really think you're sacrificing a person um to save five people I, I don't know what you would do. Yes, it's it's definitely arrogant to suggest uh, yeah. that this is going to settle that question. But that wasn't one of the things that struck me about the results wasn't that because I, I guess I never bought the hype. Of right. these. But what I thought was kind of interesting was that if you had said people are either more deontological than their answers would show in the batteries of tests or Mm -hmm. people are more consequentialist than their answers show in a battery of tests. I would have thought that, and, you know, given the mice thing, you know, on the mice thing, I would have thought my prediction would have been the opposite. People end up being more deontological than the battery of tests would indicate. And in fact, it's the opposite. People tended to be more consequentialist than the battery of tests that would yeah uh, would indicate. There were significant differences. People were making the consequentialist choice or what they call the quote-unquote consequentialist choice, which is deciding to shock the mouse uh, to save the five mice from being shocked, even if their answers indicated that that was something that they would think is uh, is wrong. So the, the actual numbers were that Participants were more than twice as likely to make a deontological decision when faced with the hypothetical dilemma. So, thirty-four percent of the people who were who were asked uh, the the hypothetical "What would you do in the mouse case?" Um, thought it was that they gave a deontological response, which would be, I mean, sorry, sixteen percent of people in real life were constrained by deontology, right? 
that so uh, only sixteen percent so eighty four percent of the people shocked. actually actually diverted the shock to the one mouse yeah yeah um, that so yeah that finding itself makes is is one of the things that made me skeptical that people just treat would treat mice maybe certain kinds of animals differently like that this isn't i i would really like to know whether or not they themselves thought of this as as a real sort of deontological or consequentialist choice while as opposed to what as opposed to just a a task about whether you want to you know like whether you're willing to divert the shock like i you know do, do they construe this as a as a yeah a moral dilemma i i don't know um I mean, even if they think of it as well, better one mouse gets shocked than than five. Isn't that to some extent making a consequentialist decision? Yeah, I suppose. I, I think that. What ha- so I think that um, even if it's like I don't really care, but yeah, yeah press the I, button. I think that the tension that arises from these dilemmas come from. The, the fact that you think an innocent person really has rights to not to not be sacrificed. And I just don't think, I mean, well, the numbers would say 84% of the people are okay with diverting it. Um, so I, I don't think that they're concerned. You know, we tend to think of animals as, a, as you know, species, not as individuals. And I think that deontology is focused on the rights of a specific individual. And I don't... Well, that's the irony, right? Like, in, Kant... <laughs> The, the the deontologist extraordinaire he didn't think like harming animals was wrong at all because well or at least there's nothing inherently wrong in harming an animal because they're not rational yeah and so there's no obligation to, right. to not harm them it might affect how you behave towards humans he thought and so best you know best uh to to not harm them yeah, to not torture them, but there's nothing intrinsically wrong with torture. Right, right. He thought like, nah, that might just be practicing for torturing a real human being. So, yeah. so like, just avoid it. Um, uh, along the lines of the argument that Sam Harris and Paul Bloom make in their op-ed about about robots, um, where eh, maybe maybe you don't want to like violently kill really realistic robots because it might actually change the way you treat human beings. So they were yeah. being Kantian without without acknowledging it um so so given those high numbers i you know I, I i don't that's why i don't think this is really a test of you know i would like to know whether they thought that they were violating a deontological ethic when they did that because because that's not i don't think what a deontologist would say but they don't um, think that they're i just don't think people think in those terms no that's, that's why that's why i don't think this is like the in the trolley situation that that guy did in real life I believe they might actually be thinking that way, um, but in this case, I just don't think it pops up as a, as, as a deontological issue at all. And, and but what issue is it? Why do I, they decide to do anything to divert it? Yeah, um, because I like I think that they they're just engaged in not a moral decision but a mathematical one where you're just like, all right, you told me they'll suffer, so. So so fine. Like, let me make right. fewer of them suffer if you're going to be I an see. asshole. So the, there's yeah. no deontological inhibitor because right, it's just exactly, a exactly. Right. Right. So okay. so the right the what would normally be for the deontologist constraining the action would be no. That innocent person has rights. Also, they, and I think they bring this up in the discussion. 
This is the version of the trolley problem that most people would endorse anyway. Um, they didn't have a footbridge one. Like they didn't, you could like push the little, if they would have pushed the little mouse onto a platform, then, then I think that would have been maybe a better test. Um, cause most people do pick the switch. Um, no, right. I, I, I think that for this study to be worth anything, we have to not think of it in terms of the deontological consequentialist divide. Right. And then I guess the question is, well, then what's given that it's not comparing actual participants behavior with how they say they would behave, but comparing it with how they say they would behave in these other scenarios where there is real humans, you might ask what the value of it is, period. Yeah, Um, I think it's it's cute. Because I really, I genuinely think that um, if you gave people the battery of of consequentialist or deontological tasks, and you and you divided people up, or you gave them a score, like an overall consequentialist score, I I don't think that this is a test of of whether or not they're actually deontologists, right? Um, for the reasons that I said, and moreover, I think that if you gave people those fourteen, I don't know how many they use, but um, the battery. And then you ask them a simple trolley dilemma. Um, I don't think that score would predict the response on the trolley, the switch, flip the switch dilemma either. Because most people in, you know, actually say, yes, flip the switch. And all of those other ones where it involves personal harm, they say no. Yeah. Well, okay, you've convinced me. <laughs> I have a lower opinion of the study than I, than I did before. Um, I mean, to give the authors credit, they anticipate one of the objections that I raised and and they also anticipate another one about animal that I think that people just don't think that way about animals. But their response is that um, recent research, however, recent research suggests that there is a symmetry between how people tend to treat animals and other humans. In particular, it's probably more appropriate to liken people's treatment of animals to how they treat human outgroups than to assume people treat animals as an entirely different moral category. And there's a lot that I don't like about that argument. Um, one, they didn't actually measure outgroup uh, moral dilemmas for outgroup members. If that's the claim, then they should have done that. But second, I don't know what evidence they're citing, but it's pretty obvious on the face of it that people treat animals differently than they treat humans, right? I mean, n- maybe not their pets, but animals in general. Like, right. It's. I don't know how you could use that as an argument that some study showed that, no, there is actually more symmetry than you might think. Sure, but Crucially, participants' empathy for animals or mice did not moderate any of the effects we have reported. Yeah, that's interesting that, that maybe. It's actually a hard thing statistically to, to use one of those measures to predict a yes or no decision. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, they go out of their way to try to get enough participants to make a, a, a you know, say they have enough power, but it's still, it's still I think, pushing it, you know, um, because I do think that given a precise enough measure of the treatment of mice that self-reported empathy for mice would predict your behavior, you know? Like, I believe that you don't have any empathy for cows, um, but you have a lot of empathy for dogs. I have a ton of empathy for cows, which is why I only <laughs> buy my <laughs> stage four or above meats. Uh, are they in stages? Like, Kohlbergian stages? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the cows that actually think of... <laughs> <laughs> they, they, so I don't know. You know, I 
I was I was all for another reason to think that trolley style dilemmas in moral psychology are not worth the time, but I'm not convinced that showing that they don't predict behavior is the right kind of criticism. And even if I were, I don't think that this showed what the showed authors that. are trying to show. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to sum up. Um, <laughs> Even if they were successful in showing what they wanted to show in this paper, which they weren't, um, you think that that still wouldn't have had the value that they say it had. Yeah, I don't think I would I wouldn't really ever predict that people treat, you know, shocking mice in the same way. You know, and part of this might be informed by all of the people who I know who actually have to sacrifice mice on a daily basis for their research. Right. I don't think that that predicts that they would score high on a utilitarianism scale. I know. I totally agree with that. And I know people like that, too. And they are not consequentialist <laughs> yeah. kinds of people at right. all. They're just consequentialist about that. Right. Um, and often just almost dogmatic about why that's totally okay to do and it has nothing to do with how they are in their in their regular lives i let's end maybe on a kind of broader question that i have like what do you how how can moral psychology just get shaken out of this like i really do think i mean when you talk about the amount of energy that's spent on this stuff versus the value that it has it's it's kind of scandalous, and yet there doesn't seem to be any way of really getting yeah. out of it. And even when you do try to get out of it, it's like you're forced to use the paradigm that yeah. I think is the thing of little value to even just show like your Chip and Tyrone study or other studies that you've done have still had to use the paradigm yeah. to try to critique the paradigm. Yeah. And it's not like that works. It's like, I mean, it works in the sense that it shows what you want to show and it, and it provides interesting results, but it, it's not like, oh, okay, then we'll stop doing this. Right. It's like we're holding on to the measures because yeah. they're so convenient in order to see what it does and does not predict. Yeah. But and I, what, and like, think, what do you do about that? You know, I think I haven't, there's obviously a, a a real answer to this, um, an empirical one, but I, I don't know what it is yet, but I'm curious, actually, I might actually go look it up, but I think that it's slowing down. I mean, I think that, that the huge sort of surge of trolleyology, um, has, I think more and more people feel like, like you do. We've probably learned enough about, (laughs) about what these measures are and what they aren't. And, and I I would bet that there are fewer that there are fewer publications than there were there were five years ago um, using this methodology. But it's always hard when it's so easy, and it's such an easy thing to do. You know, it's I almost know. like the left brain, right brain. It's like it's such an it's such a convenient distinction. There are, there are measures that people have already used. Why not just toss it in and see whether deontologists are more likely to pay their parking tickets, you know? And, and it's like all oh, sorts the- of ways to <laughs> to like justify it because it's like the paradigm and this you're responding to this person and yeah. you know like that's a big figure and 
And I think to sum up every, like all of the things that we've we've learned, including I think a lot of the the work that that I've done using the trolley cases, but really work by a bunch of people, like these measures are not good measures. Even if you believe that people are truly utilitarians or consequentialists or truly deontologists, even if you have that view that everybody walks around, you know, either driven by deontological principles or driven by a maximization of the overall good, these wouldn't be the measures that you would use to predict it. Like they're right. not good measures of even that. Right. So, right. so work by um, Guy Kahane, right, has shown like yeah. if you really want to know utilitarian, you they're distinguished not by their <laughs> willingness to sacrifice human lives but rather by their willingness to get to give give money um to donations but, but this is the meta sociological point it, even that research which i think is sort of in line with the kind of research that that you've done in the past too on this it's playing their game in a way that might be like more likely to draw responses and yeah. extend or at least so I mean I I think there's a very par- there's a parallel problem in philosophy when a literature gets stuck in a paradigm like the knowledge debate that yeah, has kind like, of fundamentally flawed assumptions or zombies or whatever. So I was going to say zombies you have if you want to write about philosophy of mind you probably have to write about zombies at some point. And and you think you trick yourself into thinking I'm going to be the one that puts a stop to the conversation but what actually happens is another hydra head you know yeah. like just gets sprouted and yeah. yeah so so a couple things one some of this work has at least tr- tried to develop better measures and so better measures are out there um i still don't know that that's stopping anybody um if you do believe that some people are consequentialist um you can use now a new measure um that that captures a consequentialist ethic um, more than these dilemma style um, things, but two, I think that um, that th- it, this that in some ways it was just unfortunately trendy, and like every trend, it'll slow down. Um, yeah, and that's so, how it ends. And that's how. That's, yeah, that's how it's it not works. because of a devastating critique that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I was going to say this might you know. So I think we we can end here, but but one of the things that it made me think of um, is when I was talking about whether or not somebody's a real utilitarian isn't best captured by whether or not they'll kill an innocent person, uh, but rather by the positive, you know, the the maximizing behaviors that they do in in terms of adding happiness to the world and people like the in the effective altruist movement. Those are the people. If you want to understand utilitarians, yeah. you you go there. So so I think we've mentioned this before, and and we're probably we will follow through. People like Will McCaskill, who who actually are out there in the world, acting um, driven by by some of those principles, driven by beliefs that they have. Yeah, exactly. Uh, moral judgments and beliefs, and and even a theory that they subscribe to. That's right. I yeah. just think those people are way more the exception than the rule but they they exist but not only that but in their real life decision making i'm pretty sure they they uh, abide by different principles under different situations and don't think of themselves as being disingenuous because human psychology does not have to match the john stuart mill or emmanuel kant 
like you nobody there's no rule that that says that human psychology ought to have been neatly described by anybody's ethical theory although like you know singer famously spent more money than his theory would allow on his sick mother yeah. But I think genuinely did feel like he was doing the wrong thing yeah. and suffering from weakness of will. Uh, yeah. I and you know, this is probably a question for for Will McCaskill if we get him on. Um I I I'm sure there are people like like Singer who are just so committed um to to that ethic. But I don't I don't know that people who 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 buy consequentialism who are convinced right so you you know all of the all of the things that we do when we teach ethics we give them the 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 you know shallow pond scenario yeah. um and they find it compelling i think i think to the extent that they're convinced they sometimes will actually go out of their way to do more good and they will maybe be convinced that they might not need the most expensive shoes and they should donate more to charity but I still think that they, in everyday life, they would not calculate. You know, they would. They yeah, would, family they, members like yeah. like being buying Christmas presents for family members. They don't feel. Yeah, bad about they it. would say no. Look, well then, fine. I'm not a good consequentialist. If that's what, you know, it's like if that's what you're saying, then fine. I'm not a good consequentialist. But I was better convinced. than you, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but I was convinced by consequentialism to do this like it's 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 a difficult it's a difficult standard to to hold the human mind to um to to following the neat principles of some some old guy who who laid out his ethical theory it's a really tough problem so i think and i think about this in philosophy too and i think it's a if you decide not to play the game if you decide i'm just not I'm not buying into this whole consequentialist deontological paradigm and I'm not even going to like do critiques of them anymore because I see that that doesn't work. It just feeds the monster and just gets more people responding to the critique and saying why it doesn't work. It just has fundamentally flawed foundations. Like, And then there's the question, okay, so what are you going to do now? So what are you going to do? We know what you're not going to do, but what are you going to do? And then sometimes because if a field is so consumed by a certain paradigm, it can be hard to answer that question. Yeah. And I think th- I think that's something that like with some pride I can say uh, I, like I and my co-authors have tried to do with our work on character where we we sort of explicitly laid out why viewing human beings is motivated by as motivated by making judgments of character of, of persons over time is a better captures the moral psychology we first had to show why it better captures the data on those tasks right yeah and then we've moved on to all, to all sorts of other kinds of scenarios um that that i think are now just focused on on testing whatever hypotheses we have about this character character view. yeah um and and i think you know there's been there's been a lot of interesting work done on this and i i i take some pride in knowing that i i played a little part in moving beyond this but yeah. as you say sociologically like i had to do trolley studies to show that yeah but i think a lot of people get to that point it is the moving on 
yeah. thing that is yeah. the the hard part because once you've established to your satisfaction that you've shown the flaws of a of a paradigm there's still going to be people who critique your critique and respond to it and that's the magnet pull back into that world right. and so at a certain point you just have to say i'm not like i've said what i'm yeah, going to say about that yeah. and now yeah, i'm yeah. going and now i'm moving forward yeah yeah we need uh maybe a neuroskeptic twitter account for trolley studies yeah. so through through light mockery people can realize i think our, <laughs> our whole history of vvw is that yeah it's just uh perhaps less pithy yeah. <laughs> definitely less pithy <laughs> given the recording time that i'm staring at right now <laughs> all right um join us next time where we move beyond this paradigm and actually i think we're probably going to do personality psychology next right yep. Yep. Yeah. I'm a Samantha. <laughs> I'm, what's a Samantha? <laughs> From Sex and the City. Oh, I see. <laughs> you know that show much better than I do. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>